Southern Chicago. This is your boy, Dr. Ed McDonald. I'm one of the gastroenterologists at the University of Chicago, and welcome to the Community Health Focus Hour, where we know you know our motto, we keep it real, we keep it honest, and we keep it thorough. All right, we have an excellent show today. We're going to be talking about a topic that is extremely important and definitely timely considered what's going on right now with the COVID virus. So we're going to be talking about research in the black community and research with black patients, and we're going to talk about why people of color should participate in clinical clinical research. So, of course, we're going to get into some of the history in terms of issues with clinical research, but we're not only going to focus on the history. We're going to talk about the future and the present, for that matter. So I have an excellent lineup of guests. Everybody's calling in because we're all practicing social distancing nowadays. So we have Joseph Harrington. He's a co-lead for Capricorn's Patient Community Advisory Committee. So, Joseph, are you there? Dr. McDonald. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Okay, or I appreciate be here virtually. Hey, I appreciate having you here. So we we also have another good brother, Kareem Watson, MPH from the University of Illinois at Chicago, also an active researcher involved with a lot of cancer and involved in a lot of community research. So Kareem, are you there? Yes, I am here. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming on the show. And we also have Brissa Ashbrook. Did I pronounce your name correctly, Brissa? Yes, Brissa Ashbrook. Ashbrook. Sorry about that. So she's a Ph.D. in Ph. She is a chronic disease and environmental epidemiologist at the Institute for Population and Precision Health. So thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to participate today. Okay. So, Brissa, let's start with you. What is the All of Us program, and can you tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, is it research? Why should people be involved? What is it? Sure. All of Us is a nationwide research effort sponsored by the National Institutes of Health uh, to speed up health research and medical breakthroughs. Essentially, we're all different, and we need health care that's tailored to us as individuals. Too often, healthcare is one size fits all. Treatments meant for the average patient may not work well for individual people. Unfortunately, healthcare providers don't always have the information they need to make tailored recommendations because research hasn't always included diverse groups of people. All of us is working to improve healthcare through research. So, unlike research studies that focus on one disease or a group of people, all of us is building a diverse database that can inform thousands of studies on a variety of health conditions. To achieve this, we're looking for one million people across the country to help build one of the world's largest and most diverse databases for health research. To accomplish this, we're accepting volunteers from all walks of life to be our partners. Our participants share information over time through surveys, health records, biosamples, and even more. Um, researchers nationwide will be able to use this data in thousands of studies down the road. And these studies may yield important new findings, such as basic understanding of underlying mechanisms or pathways that lead to a disease or other poor health outcomes, and more personalized treatment approaches, as I mentioned previously, uh, with drugs potentially tailored to patients' genes, as an example. These projects could provide deeper understanding of the causes of and solutions to health disparities. Put it simply, the more researchers learn about our individual differences, the more tailored our health care can become. In Chicago specifically, the University of Chicago is working with UIC, Northwestern, Rush, and North Shore on the enrollment of 100,000 of the million participants. 
We've been in the field now for about two years, and we've successfully enrolled over 28,000 people. All of us nationally has enrolled about 275,000 people in the past two years. Gotcha. Now, all these goals sound noble. Have you faced any challenges in terms of enrolling people, especially here in Chicago on the south side and west side? In terms of enrollment, you know, our team deeply believes that diversity in health research matters. The vision of our Institute for Population and Precision Health at UChicago is precision health for all. So we've intentionally developed a research program and infrastructure that's inclusive and that actively promotes participation, particularly in Southside communities. So we don't wait for people to walk into the medical center and a volunteer to participate in all of us or our other local projects and cohorts. We go out into the community daily. We have a mobile unit team that partners with community organizations and enrolls participants in Chicago neighborhoods on large mobile medical units equipped with technology to facilitate our survey completion, exam rooms for labs and specimen collection and processing, et cetera. So we've intentionally made our research programs accessible and convenient so that participation is as easy as possible. We've also have been working to ensure that the benefit is bi-directional. One aspect of that effort is that we have hired community ambassadors or community members to help bring all of us and our other research programs into the communities that have been historically left out of health research and also to use some of the investment to provide jobs. Our, um, thus far at University of Chicago and in the All of Us Research Program, we've enrolled about 80% African-Americans across the Illinois Precision Medicine Consortium, again, including Northwestern, UIC, Rush, and North Shore. We've enrolled about 28,000 people and slightly above 50% are African-American. We're we're leading the nation in the enrollment of underrepresented minorities, an achievement that we're extremely proud of given the implications for the potential mitigation of, of health disparities in Chicago down the road. So when someone is enrolled, what does participation look like? What types of things do you expect from people who are enrolled? So for our listeners, I want you to kind of define what it means to be enrolled in the study. Yeah, so interested participants can go to the allofus.org website to enroll and consent. There they can provide first type of data that we're collecting, that's survey data. There are three modules that take about 45 minutes to complete and include questions covering basic information like birth date, gender, race, occupation, et cetera. We ask some questions on overall health and your medical history. And then we also ask some questions about lifestyle, including information on physical activity, diet, smoking, alcohol use, those types of things. You can complete these survey modules online on your own or with assistance in our clinic. Our, we have an Institute for Population and Precision Health Research Clinic at UChicago. Our partner sites also have in-person clinics that can help with enrollment or on the mobile unit. So the University of Chicago, we have two large mobile units that are out in community daily. So participants are asked to also complete a consent for electronic health record access so that your medical records can be compiled and sent to the program. And you'll be asked to schedule a visit to provide blood and urine samples where we'll also take some physical measurements like height, weight, blood pressure, heart rate, etc. After the enrollment visit, the NIH and our local staff will ask you to complete additional surveys which will likely include a COVID-19 survey that's under development in, in the future. 
Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the COVID-19 survey since uh, that is something that everyone's dealing with right now? Yeah. So what? So one of the questions has been, you know, with all of us, how, how exactly does all of us speed up medical breakthroughs? I think that with the coronavirus, you know, we were enrolling participants in February and early March. So the, the NIH was able to immediately access those samples that had already been collected and banked to understand the, the prevalence nationally of coronavirus by looking at the, the all of us blood samples. Okay, now we have a caller calling in. Michael, Michael, are you there, Michael? Yes, I am. Hey, Michael. Hello? Hey, thanks for calling in. Hi, this is Michael O'Connor. Uh, you know, doctor, I'm always very concerned. Yes. And when I literally uh, don't hear the type of what I would consider cultural competency okay. in healthcare research, yeah. specifically as it concerns not the participants but the people who are being engaged with. Why am I only hearing the University of Chicago? UIC. WVON has a long history with Chicago State. Yeah. Chicago State is graduates more black folks in the state of Illinois than both of those organizations, both of those educational organizations combined. You know, we're in a pandemic. Yeah. When are we going to get a piece of the pie? I think that's an excellent question. And, you know, I, on this show, I've had uh, definitely researchers from Chicago State come on the show. So uh, my good friend Thomas Britt, also interested in nutrition. We have done some work together. He's been on the show. But I agree with you. I think representation matters. And, you know, when it comes to a lot of institutions that you hear from, some of it has to do with grant funding and access to some resources. So if some of the bigger norm name uh, institutions may have a little bit more access. That does not make things right, but that is one possible explanation. But nonetheless, your question is 100% valid, and I'm going to have some of my other guests like Kareem Watson and Mr. Harrington yes. address some of those issues. You guys want to jump in on that? I do. Thank you. This is Kareem Watson from the University of Illinois at Chicago, as well as Mile Square Health Center. And the question is very valid and very timely. And your point is, is a very, and you actually said it, hit it on the head, Dr. McDonald. We, we do have to do a better job of getting our historically black colleges and universities and even our minority-serving institutions, MSIs, involved in this project. I do want to note, though, that UIC is a minority-serving institution. Yeah. And what I can appreciate and respect about the All of Us project is that if the investigators are actually from diverse backgrounds as well, which is something that you often don't see. When you think about the researchers from the multiple institutions involved in the All of Us research study, we actually reflect the populations that we serve, which is something that you don't often see mm -hmm. in NIH-funded trials. Now, could we do better? 100%. I know, for example, I'll give you two examples where University of Chicago has partnered with Chicago State to actually address this whole concept of pipeline and training. And that was with the project with Dr. Karen Kim and Dr. Thomas Fripp that was looking, it was called a P20, where they're looking at taking MPH students and making sure that they understood the concepts of research and the importance of diversity in clinical trial. And UIC had a similar type of project with, with Governor State, where we were doing the same thing, and we also have a similar project with NEIU. But his point is not lost. We do have to do better, and I hope our academic partners that are listening will take this as a call to action for us to do 
more in reach to our other minority serving institutions such as Chicago State. So thank you for that. So that's an awesome point, and we're going to take it a break right now. Listeners, please call in 312-374-8130. All right. Welcome back, Chicago. So, listeners, if you're just now tuning in, we're talking about research in the African-American community and clinical trials. We're going to get into some of the history. We're going to also ask questions in terms of why you should be involved, why you should think about participating in clinical trials. Callers, please call in ask some good questions, 312-374-8130. I repeat, 312-374-8130. All right. So, so let's let's get into it. So I'm a physician. I also engage in research and I do a lot of community research. And, and, you know, there is a lot of mistrust within our community when it comes to research. And there's a lot of historical reasons why that mistrust exists. And some people feel that mistrust may be a little bit pragmatic based upon a uh, history of clinical trials in this country. So what do you guys think about this mistrust and have you experienced issues with mistrust, especially when it comes to enrolling people in clinical trials? I'd like to speak to that. This is uh, Joe Harrington. All right. One of the things I think that's important, I think this show hopefully will get at, is uh, one of the uh, major reasons that minorities don't participate in study is uh, fear and distrust. And that goes back years. I mean, it's, it's, it's historical in terms of African Americans. Yeah. Our experiences in this country, our treatment in terms of the uh, medical system, uh, leads us not to trust not only uh, doctors but but systems in in general. And so, one of the things that that people may not have, and and that's why this show is important: information about studies, what studies can do. I can offer an example of a study that I was involved in. It's a major national study, and it did provide some benefit in terms of actually establishing treatment guidelines for women. That was a women's health initiative, the largest study of women's health ever done in the country. And I was the uh, person over recruitment at that time at Rush University Medical Center. Okay. The things that I want to point out is, one, the uh, women's health initiative was the uh, study that it actually established that uh, contrary to beliefs that hormone replacement therapy protected women from heart disease, it actually uh, could increase a woman's risk of heart disease and breast cancer. So that was a significant finding. And if that study had never happened, we would never have made that, that finding. Our site, like all the sites in the United States, there were three arms of the study. One focused specifically on hormone replacement therapy. The other was diet management, diet as, as a tool to keep people healthy. And the largest uh, part of the study, and the largest cohort, was involved in an observational study. What I'm happy to say and proud to say is we were a minority site, and we recruited over 2,000 women, and 60% of those women were African-American. So one, it's an indication that you can get African-Americans to a joint study. Mm-hmm. It also, the fact that we were a minority site, we were, we were overrepresented because we know that minorities are specifically underrepresented study. So it is a challenge, but I think fear and mistrust is a major reason. But you also have to look at the fact that there's not a lot of information, and that's what hopefully we can provide during the show today. Definitely, definitely. So Thank I'll you, open this Frank. up to everybody. So why do you yeah. think it's important that 
African-Americans participate in research, especially population health studies and environmental studies? Thank you for asking and, and framing it in that. This is Kareem Watson and framing it in that way about population health studies. I'll give you a quick example of what happens when we do not participate. As Joe, Mr. Harrington said earlier, you know, another thing I would like to add to what he said is also access. Yeah. The other reasons why I did a focus group with some African-American communities and Latino and Latinx Hispanic communities about why they don't participate. And although fear and mistrust was was mentioned, the bigger issue was access. And this kind of gets to the point that the brother was making about Chicago State and those partners. Often when these research studies are conducted, they're not conducted in places and clinical spaces where African-American patients and populations and other minorities frequent and get their care. Yeah. And we have to do a better job with that. But one study I like to always highlight is, and, you know, this is a shout out to Dr. Wynn, our f former cancer director. He used to say, what happens when we're not at the table? So one of the largest studies done by the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, to move the needle in terms of lung cancer screening was the National Lung Screening Trial. That trial had over 53,000 participants in it at 33 sites. And it actually got some groundbreaking outcomes from it that showed us that um, low-dose CT, a type of um, study of the chest, can actually improve lung cancer outcomes. That's groundbreaking. Yeah. Knowing that African-Americans die from lung cancer at increasing rates, would have thought that we would have been the leading enrollers in that study, but we were not. We only represented less than, than 5%. African-Americans represented less than 5% of that study population. So now what, where that, those results, although they are groundbreaking, I don't want to take away from that study, when we're trying to implement those guidelines in our federally qualified health centers, they don't really reflect our patient population. Our, our African-Americans smoke differently. They don't take into account social determinants of health, yeah. environmental, structural racism. We don't like to talk about how racism gets, gears its ugly head in terms of health care, but it does. Yeah. And th that research study, unfortunately, didn't take all that into account. Yeah, I agree So that you. means that we have to do additional studies to take all those things into account. How we smoke, why we smoke, where we smoke, and then even how policy informs what we smoke, too. Yeah. So that's an example of what happens when we weren't, we're not at the table. Now, those guidelines, although effective for the larger population, don't always get to the granular issues that are happening in the African-American community. Yeah, if, if I could, let me make a quick point. And, 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 and before you jump in, before you jump in. About us counting, and we're currently in the throes of a major uh, national census. And so, simply put, that if you don't participate or if we don't participate in the study, we will not be counted. And there will not be enough data actually determine whether that information is collected is generalizable to our population. So that's an important reason for us to participate. Definitely. I wanted to follow up with Kareem's comment on cancer research and just briefly mention that UChicago was awarded funding to work on the National Cancer Institute's next generation cancer cohort called CONNECT. We are um, we're in the planning phase of what will be the equivalent of the NIH's precision medicine, all of us efforts for cancer research. Uh, in 2020, we're going to be enrolling tens of thousands of the 200,000 participants nationwide at our medical center, and we're hopeful that we are able to achieve excellent participation among our African-American patients, given that less than 2% of all cancer studies previously have had adequate numbers to say anything about disparities or minority cancer risk. Our role in CONNECT could support major breakthroughs in cancer disparities if we um, have successful participation. 
the data collected from the Connect study will be a national resource used for decades to learn about cancer risk prevention and treatment in the United States. And we're excited for a lot of reasons to participate, but bringing some diversity to this important project will be a big win for our communities. Yeah, yeah. Now, let me get a caller. So, Kareem, uh, we have a caller also named Kareem calling in from Buffalo, New York. Are you there? Oh, uh, yeah. Is that me? Am I on? Yeah, yeah. How you doing over there in Buffalo? Yeah. Oh, well, the weather's good. Sun's out. Uh, not bad. Okay. We just got uh, We just came out of a couple of days of blizzard-like snow, but uh, it's all gone, and uh, weather is great right now. now. I'll take it. Is the COVID situation there similar to what we're seeing in New York City? Nowhere is bad. We're, you know, uh, Buffalo, New York is actually in western New York. Yeah. It's like uh, maybe somewhere between five, six hours away from, uh, you know, New York City itself. So gotcha. I'm more close to Cleveland, Ohio, actually. Okay. Than I am to New York City. Okay. I've been doing a lot of uh, reading and looking at doctors' articles on, uh, you know, the research, particularly COVID-19 and uh, the flu and the dissimilarities. But I don't think that's what your guesses are, are, are on the show about, right? Yeah, so we're talking about research. Yeah, like cancer research or something. Well, research uh, in general. Research in general. Yeah. Okay, yeah. My Okay, my first question is, uh, do they, you know, what do they know about the, the COVID-19? What do they know about uh, hydroxychloroquine? Does it contain lysosomes, which is an animal animal product? Does hydroxychloroquine contain lysosomes? Okay. Do they know that? Do they have that information? So, listeners, he's talking about one of the medications that has been touted as a potential treatment for the COVID-19 virus, hydroxychloroquine. There's actually a clinical study going on at multiple different institutions. I believe Chicago University of Chicago is one of the participating institutions where patients are receiving hydroxychloroquine, which is a uh, lupus medication or also an anti-malarial medication called Plaquenil. And uh, we're combining it with another medication, an antibiotic called azithromycin, also known as a ZPAC. So a lot of people have had a ZPAC at one time or another. Now, whether or not the medication itself includes lysosomes or lysozymes, I'm not entirely sure. I would uh, venture to say no, primarily because uh, that's part of a, a cell, more or less, and this is more or less a, a chemical as opposed to a kind of a live cell, cellular ingredient that, that people are giving. And one of the issues with this medication in general is really the, the impact of social media and the media on research. So for uh, my colleagues who are on the show, what do you think about doing research in a world where we're all interconnected with social media and the not only do we have to address historical distrust and mistrust, we have to address some of the mistrust that's created by false information that's being put out there. How do we navigate that situation? I'd like to uh, jump in. This is uh, Joe Herring because I think there are things that we can do. One, as professionals, uh, we can make sure that people are getting accurate information. And I think that's what we're trying to do. In terms of the uh, research that I'm involved in right now, it's compromised because a lot of what we were doing was predicated upon bringing people together in groups to meet with us and uh, help us frame research questions for researchers in the uh, Capricorn network. So 
you can't meet with groups of larger than 10. So now uh, we've been impacted because we can no longer meet with groups, and we're exploring other uh, ways to involve people moving forward, and we're looking to do some, some web-based meetings. Uh, I also uh, want to point out, and maybe uh, Dr. Watson can talk about this, uh, there's a, a unique opportunity through our funder. Uh, both of us have funded projects through the Patient Center Research Outcomes Institute, and uh, he has a patient brigade, uh, which is funded by PCORI, the Patient Center Research Outcomes Institute. And he's been uh, talking about uh, getting some additional funds for his patient brigade to help people uh, navigate this. So maybe Dr. Watson can talk about it and our recent call with the uh, State Health Department to try to get some people actively engaged in mitigating this. That's Thank a great point. You know, um, yeah, and I have to give a shout-out to one of my colleagues, Dr. Tanya Robeson, a community psychologist who actually brought me to this table. One of the things I love about the work that Tanya does, Dr. Robeson does, is she translates what you just said, or kind of translates those issues. So we need more researchers and community health scientists that can become trusted messengers. Because this whole concept of health literacy and how messages are gotten to the public it's by the time you do a Google search or some other search to try to find out what they're talking about, you're inundated with multiple, with a lot of information, which is not a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing if you don't have a trusted messenger or a trusted source to go to to help you make an informed decision. For example, I love the way you broke down the, the conversation about the hydroxychloroquine. That's exactly right. We have to talk about the risk and benefits of it. We have to talk about the fact that it is in clinical trials. We have to talk about the fact of what happens if African-Americans that are dealing with COVID don't participate in these clinical trials. We'll be back in the same situation that we are with a lot of things. So to Joe's point, we have a group of patient members and caregivers and advocates at UIC that we call the Patient Brigade, made up of majority-minority racial and ethnic minority patients that are cancer survivors, survivors of other chronic conditions, and they actually inform the research we do. So before I sometimes put messages out there, I actually will run them by Candace Henley, who's the founder of Blue Hat Foundation. I and love I'll Candace, say, by the I'm way. I'm about to do a colorectal cancer screening campaign. Does my messaging make sense? And she often says no. <laughs> and then she'll edit what I wrote to be more user-friendly and more community-centric. And as a gastroenterologist, Candace is uh, kind of my, my right hand when it comes to reaching out to the communities, specifically right? when it, go, it comes to colon cancer. One of the things that, that I don't think people know, Chicago is a very large city, but, but it's also very heavily networked in the fields of healthcare and public health. And so I haven't worked with you directly, Dr. McDonald, but I have worked with Dr. Watson. I've worked with Dr. Britt, and I worked for Dr. Mason. So it's people like us that have not only an opportunity, but we have an obligation to make sure that our community is informed and, and has the information they need to make good decisions. And I think that's what we're all trying to do. Yeah, I agree with that. And shout out to and Dr. Dr. Mason. I want to shout out to Project Brotherhood, too. Because they just recently, I was having some issues with messaging. Like, for example, with the COVID-19, community yeah. members were calling me saying, Kareem, I like what the CDC has online, and you told me to go there. I can't pass that out and right. to my church. I can't pass that out. So I, I, Project Brotherhood called me up and said, Kareem, we got you. Yeah. They made some culturally tailored messaging around, and it was as simple as fact versus myth. Yeah, and just right. that simple breakdown of facts versus myths was something that I'm, I'm now able to pass up to community members to help really communicate at 
this this concept of what's true and what's not. Yeah, and, and I, I love the concept of you know people within the community being a part of uh, messaging for the community. But we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and and address that a little bit more and also talk about Project Brotherhood, a place where I trained earlier when I was a medical student. In <laughs> Chicago. Welcome back. This is Community Health Focus Hour. I'm your host, Dr. Ed McDonald. We're talking about research in the African-American community. Listeners, please call in 312-374-8130. So before the break, we were just talking about Project Brotherhood. Uh, that is a clinic for black men on the South Side, a clinic that I love. Uh, shout out to Dr. Thomas. Shout out to Mar- Marcus Murray. Real good people, mentors of mine, friends of mine. But hearing Brother Watson talk about Project Brotherhood made me realize the role research played, even in my own career. So for me as a medical student, I volunteered at Project Brotherhood when I was a first-year medical student, and I was looking for other African-American doctors. So I was at Northwestern, and at that time, there were maybe like one or two black male doctors, and I needed mentorship. I went to Project Brotherhood, and they got me involved with a research study that they had that they were trying to look at ways to encourage more black people to undergo colon cancer screening because we have, especially black men, we have the highest rates of colon cancer in the country. So I participated in that study. I led focus groups as a young medical student, and my involvement in that study is was one of my inspirations to actually become a gastroenterologist. So I owe a lot to not only Project Brotherhood, but also the participants in that study. Like, they literally help inspire me to actually give back to the community in which I grew up in and also so live in currently. So the benefits of research, it benefits not only us as a community, but it also can inspire people to become better researchers and also focus in on addressing our needs within our community. Well, hundred percent, Doc. I, you and I, we crossed paths on that study, and I know then and didn't realize it because I helped analyze the data on that study, and that's what also got me interested. And in, and in, you know, Marcus and Dr. Linda Ray Murray and others, they. I, you know, in the public health space, I, I like to say that they kind of helped raise me up, right? Same here. As a student, you were right. I came here from Michigan, and as a, as a graduate student, I didn't see people like me conducting the research and asking the questions that I wanted to ask, asking them where I wanted to ask them and the way I wanted to ask them. You came and from I, University I, of Michigan? Yeah, and I'm, I'm from University of Michigan. And I'm oh, thankful same here. That, go blue. Yeah, go blue. And I'm thankful that, you know, I found Project Brotherhood and, and others. And Dr. I have to give a shout out to Dr. Rick Kittles as well, because I, I used to follow Dr. Kittles to churches when he was doing his prostate cancer study and vitamin D. And he just looked up and like, who's this dude that keeps following us around? And eventually I became part of the team. Yeah. I was just so excited to see a black geneticist asking questions the way I wanted them asked and in communities where, where I wanted to also ask those questions. Yeah. So also who's asking the question? It matters. And we have, we can't separate this, this discussion about diversity in clinical trials without talking about diversity in the clinical scientists actually asking the research questions. Yeah, definitely. And what our listeners should be aware of in order to increase that diversity, like people actually have to do research to be the researchers. <laughs> And we need participants to participate in some of those trials in order to actually uh, create a, a, a better pipeline of creating more, you know, researchers of color. So we're, we're all kind of in this together. 
And the stuff that I'm researching, you, you know, I remember being a, a, one of the few black men in medical school in my class, and I would sit there and I hear about how, you know, African-American men have higher rates of high blood pressure, higher rates of lung cancer, higher rates of stroke, higher rates of diabetes. And I would sit there as a medical student thinking to myself, why? Like, why is this happening? But I was thinking not only as a medical student, I was thinking as a black man. I was thinking as someone who has a black father, black grandfathers, and brothers and neighbors who I don't want to see people have these diseases. So in order for me to figure out why this is happening uh, for my family and also for myself, like, we need research. And that's, that's the point of all this. So let's talk about precision medicine. What is precision medicine? Can anyone jump in? Brisa, you want to take that one? Brisa, are you, are you, are you still there? I can take that one. Or, yeah, or, um, Joe, I think, was going to take that question. Oh, no, that's, that, that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with you taking it. Yeah, so, and, and Dr. McDonald, you're probably better equipped to answer this than I am, but, but you know, precision medicine, the goal of precision medicine is to, is to tailor health care to the individual patient's needs rather than to get this average treatment that uh, has been sort of tailored to, you know, the population in general. It takes into consideration all of your individual factors, including, which we haven't talked about much yet, but you, the environment that you live in. We're doing a lot of work around that at the, at the University of Chicago to ensure that treatment is um, tailored in a way that is more effective at the individual level. Gotcha. So, yeah, and, and to pick up on what she just said, I think what, what we're looking at is tailoring medicine to the individual as opposed to large groups. There may be something that could work specifically for you. And I think the uh, all of us study is hoping to move us in that direction to find not only treatments that are better for people in general, but treatments that may be individualized moving forward. And another thing I want to point out, we use the word medicine a lot, but a lot of the research studies that we're talking about, we're not just focusing on medicine in the sense, uh, you know, pills and procedures and stuff. Uh, some of it could just be lifestyle, the way you eat, the way you sleep. So with precision medicine, you know, for me, having a weight management clinic and being interested in nutrition, one of the things that I think of is when I talk to someone about how to lose weight and I, I try to give advice, like how do I make that advice personalized as opposed to giving generic information? So right now there's a lot of generic information out there. People want to, you know, get on a ketogenic diet or people want to be low carb or low fat. But we need precision medicine to really figure out the best way to approach eating for the individual. And there's a lot of research in the field of nutrigenomics, which is how your actual genetics can impact the way you absorb nutrients and digest food and process foods. So all that is, is research that needs to be done in order to find answers uh, to really help us live our optimal lives. That's a really great point. And you talk about, we, we often say precision medicine. I like the, the term precision, precision prevention and precision screening even. Yeah. My own personal story is that, you know, my dad died from complications of colorectal cancer and diabetes. So oh, I remember man. being concerned when I got that call as an undergraduate student for, when I was studying at U of M that he had colon cancer and compounded by his diabetes. And fortunately, he survived for, you know, over a decade later. But what he died of was the complications of his diabetes and the colon cancer. And I remember going to get screened and my doctor, died, you know, I remember talking to a friend of mine, Dr. Keith Naylor, and saying, you yeah, know, I had my buddy. 
Right. And Keith was like, Kareem, no, dude, you need you need a full colonoscopy. Yeah. So, you know, and I remember and I'm in the field, right? I'm in public health. And so if I had got some misinformation, you know, that wasn't precise to my family history, how often is that not happening? So I often say that this conversation should start with your primary care doctor about knowing your family history. Candace often says family secrets kills families. Yeah. We don't often know what age was it that a certain family member got a certain thing because that may determine the precision in which screenings start for you. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, I think it's important, too, to uh, talk about the interplay of genetics and environment so, so that you may genetically be predisposed to a certain type of disease, particularly on the basis of race, because we know that a lot of times when they look at some of the non-modifiable risk factors, race is typically one of the non-modifiable risk factors for African-Americans. We are at risk, increased risk of cancer, heart disease, diabetes, uh, but it's also this interplay of genetics in the context of the environment. We also live in environments very often that are harmful to our health and they can have an impact on our genetics moving forward. So what are your thoughts regarding some of the disparities when it comes to COVID-19 and then subsequently how to approach research studies to address what's really going on? And when I look at the media, there's a lot of, you know, there's some blaming the victim going on, and then there's also a lot of misinformation, and there's also a lot of stuff that we just don't know. What do you all think about uh, some of the disparities that have been in the news recently? Well, I've been giving it a lot of thought, and one of the things that that is, is obvious to me that I don't know why people are surprised. Yeah. I mean, we've been disproportionately impacted by disease since the founding of this country. And so for someone to be shocked at the fact that now African Americans seem to be more susceptible or more likely to die from coronavirus, COVID-19, is I'm trying to figure out what planet have they been on for all these years because that should have been obvious moving forward because disparities are nothing new. Gaps in health uh, and life expectancy are nothing new. For me, it gets back to this issue of some of the environments in which people live that put them at greater risk. And, And I think what you're talking about is some people will hear the statement that African Americans are disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus in terms of mortality, but it will lead some people to think, well, what's wrong with African Americans? <laughs> Why yeah, are they more susceptible? It has nothing yeah, to do to with us as a race. It has a lot to do with some systematic and historic barriers that have been put on, on us moving forward. And I agree. I was and, on a call, Joe, recently with Dr. Linda Ray Murray, and people were talking right. about stigma, and she asked a question. She said, did racism, I mean, did stigma replace the word racism? <laughs> and, you know, because the reality of it is that a lot of this is the same institutional, systemic, and structural racism and structural right. violence that has existed, that COVID-19 is just unmasking, um, that it's been there. I'm with the same th- theme as Joe. We can't be surprised by this. COVID-19 is, is addressing the same issues of systemic racism and structural violence that we see across other chronic health conditions. Yeah, I I agree. I I was more shocked by the surprise than actually what we're seeing. 
So what do you tell people who really just have uh, overall medical mistrust, especially not only when it comes to COVID, but just in general? And I'll give you an example. I've seen people, I work in our ER and I uh, volunteer in the COVID unit periodically. And I've seen people that don't want to get swabbed for COVID because they believe that the COVID swab will actually kill them as opposed to, to, you know, diagnosing the virus or people believe that the swab is actually what's giving people the virus. How do we how do we address some of this distrust that, you know, really has come from history? It's not that people are crazy. It's because people have have had a crazy historical experience. And how do you, how do we address these things when it comes to not only providing care, but also encouraging people to participate in research studies. Yeah, I I think that one of the things you talked about, the pipeline, we need more doctors, nurses, health professionals that look like African Americans and come from the same background, same experience as them, and that starts early on. So if there are young people that are listening or people that have young people at home, really make sure they get some good, solid education so they become the future leaders uh, in health care. The other thing, and we sort of talked about this, is sometimes the messenger can can skew the, the message. If I'm talking to someone that looks like me, that they have trust in, I can, I, can, I can gain somebody's confidence and trust, and I can give them a message that they'll listen to. So it's important that we have more people like us, those of us that are on this program today, that actually take these messages forth. Uh, there will be challenges, but we're more likely to be heard than other people. Gotcha. On that note, we're going to wrap things up. So I want to give everyone one last opportunity to say something and, and also tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can follow you, or give them uh, find any more information about what you're doing. So, Brisa, let's start with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. You can reach me at brisa at uchicago.edu. Look for us out in the community with our, our mobile medical unit. Come say hello and, um, you know, learn more about the research programs that the Institute for Population and Precision Health is leading. All right, Joe, what about yourself? Uh, well, if you want more information about what I'm I'm doing and I'm working very closely with Capricorn, you can go to www.capricorncdrn.org. That's www.capricorncdrn.org. And I'm working on a project called Elevating the Patient Voice in Research. And for more information about that, call 312-372-4292. That's 312-372-4292. All right. Dr. Watson. Yes, thank you. I, I want to start with the primary care, primary care message that a lot of this can be addressed through having a good primary care doctor, someone who knows your medical history, knows that you may be at risk for it, who can have that conversation. So if you are in need of a primary care doctor, and despite your ability to pay your insurance status, we are still taking patients at the Miles Square Health Center, and you can reach us at 312-996-2000. Again, the number is 312-996-2000, and we're also getting ready to open up testing on the south side, and we're also hosting weekly think tanks every Thursday with um, up-level leaders. And you can Google up-level leaders to find out their website. All right. So I want to thank my guests for being on the show. I really appreciate you guys. And I I look forward to reaching out to you after this to figure out how to continue this conversation and also get more people involved in research. Plus, Kareem, your Michigan guy, we're probably there at the same time, especially if you know Keith Naylor. Dr. Naylor was one of the cats who helped me study for the MCAT once upon a time. So, listeners, you can find me at my website, www.thedocskitchen.com. Tune in next week. Take care.
The Community Health Focus Hour is brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine.